Welcome to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This series supports my course, The Shaping of the Modern World. This is episode one, a tour of the world around 1400. Let's start in a laboratory, Solar Foods. It's located outside the city of Helsinki, the capital of Finland. Here, Pazi Vainika and his colleagues are developing a process to produce foodstuffs from unicellular life, that is, from bacteria. Bacteria is extracted from soil in a laboratory using hydrogen from water as the energy source. Solar Foods has figured out a process for producing a kind of flour from this bacterial stew. This substance has the potential to become the feedstock for almost everything. When you modify the bacteria in a lab, you can create proteins to make lab-grown meat, milk, and eggs. Another modification, and you can produce lauric acid, which is the main fatty acid in coconut and palm oil. Another modification can produce long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, and that means lab-grown fish. When proteins and fats are extracted from the substance, the carbohydrates that remain could replace flour and potatoes. What is perhaps most important is this. The space and resources required are far less than what is required to grow food and produce livestock. Why does this matter right now? Around 200 years ago, humanity broke out of what historians call the biological old regime. The biological old regime is a term used by historians as a way to describe the bundle of environmental factors that determined the lives and activities of nearly all humans until around the year 1800. By environmental factors, what we're mainly talking about is constraints imposed almost entirely by nature on where, how, and how long humans lived. When humanity broke out of these constraints, the resulting system of food production and population increases changed the world. But this system has become unsustainable. One British journalist recently put it this way, and here I'm quoting the journalist George Manbio. We are on the cusp of the biggest economic transformation of any kind for 200 years. While arguments rage about plant versus meat-based diets, new technologies will soon make them irrelevant. Before long, most of our food will come neither from animals nor plants, but from unicellular life. After 12,000 years of feeding humankind, all farming except fruit and vegetable production is likely to be replaced by firming, that is, brewing microbes through precision fermentation. So from a longer-term historical perspective, we might ask Dr. Vanika this question. Is what you might call the second biological old regime coming to an end? Now let's step back and take a look at the main features of the world in the 14th and 15th centuries, that is the 1300s and 1400s. What can we say in general about the lives of the vast majority of humans alive around 1400? In the 1300s and into the 1400s, most people's lives were shaped by two conditions. One was the biological old regime, and the other was the networks of trade that linked together parts of what historians call the old world. Let's start 
with a biological old regime. First, the world's population is estimated to have been around 380 million people around the year 1400. Today, it's over 7 billion. Back then, it was rising very slowly, with the rise punctuated sharply, most dramatically, by the Black Death in the mid-1300s. I'll come back to that. Second, most people were involved in working the land or waterways in some way, that is, as farmers, fishermen, or herders of animals, or some combination of these. Third, most people lived in rural settings and not in towns or cities. The geographic distribution of populations was concentrated on about 7% of the world's land, that is, 4.25 million square miles out of 60 million square miles of dry land. This was because it was this small percentage of land that was arable, meaning you could grow things on it. These populations were clustered in 15 civilizations in Asia, Islamic West Asia, Europe, and parts of the Western Hemisphere. Around 1400, about 70% of the world's population was concentrated in China, India, Europe, and the Aztec and Incan civilizations in what are today the nations of Mexico and Peru. Finally, until around 1700, it was changes in the climate that had the greatest effect on how quickly or slowly human populations would grow, and also how long a human would live. And there were other limiting factors, some environmental and some caused by humans. Disease, famines, and warfare were among the most important. Beginning in the 18th century, the biological old regime started to come to an end as humans found ways to break out of its constraints, mainly through the development of improved fertilizers or by conquering vast overseas empires that could supply foodstuffs and raw materials, or by industrialization and, of course, by modern medicine. The two most important long-term implications of these developments have been the great increase in the emission of CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere and the resulting impact on the world's climate, and massive and rapid population growth and the resulting pressures on the environment. This is why Pazivaniki insists that ventures like solar foods represent the future of sustainable food production. Okay, what about the trading world? In the 14th century, a good part of the inhabited world was interconnected by trade. There were three great subsystems. One encompassed China, Southeast Asia, and India. Another, the Middle East Mongolian realms, which connected Europe and East Asia. And the third was the European subsystem. The subsystems overlapped and were connected to each other by trade routes, all of them seeming terminating in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea. Within the three major subsystems were eight trading zones, also overlapping and interlinked. No single civilization dominated this system as a whole. Empires existed, but no single empire dominated the system either. 
Hence, historians use the term polycentric to characterize it. Each center within this larger system had three common features. One, the lives of its populations were shaped by the conditions of the biological old regime. Two, they had a relatively small number of large urban centers and towns, that is, a core, and these were surrounded by a periphery that sustained the core with food and raw materials. And three, they were connected to each other by trade networks. This polycentric system was the basis for modern globalization. The trade networks that cut across the Afro-Eurasian subsystems transported more than food and raw materials. They transported ideas, literature, religion, soldiers, and warfare. And they transported diseases. In the mid-14th century, a pandemic of plague, commonly known as the Black Death, devastated human communities in Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. What is plague? Plague is a re-emerging, flea-borne, rodent-associated zoonotic disease. A zoonotic disease means an infectious disease caused by bacteria, viruses, and parasites that spreads between animals and humans. Most diseases in humans, around 75%, arise in animals. The strain of coronavirus that produced the current pandemic is a zoonotic disease. An epidemic occurs when a disease affects a greater number of people than is usual for the locality, or one that spreads to areas not usually associated with the disease. A pandemic is an epidemic of worldwide proportions. There have been multiple deadly coronavirus pandemics over the last 20 years, SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And now we have COVID-19, which was named by the World Health Organization. There is evidence that the new coronavirus made the jump from animals sold as food in a market in Wuhan, China. The first known human victims were workers or customers of this market, but there's still a great deal we don't know about its origins. What about plague? Plague is caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. The bacterium was discovered by two scientists in 1894, Kitasato Shibasaburo and the French scientist Alexandre Yersin. It is named after Yersin. It takes three forms. One is bubonic. Bubonic plague results from a bite from an infected animal or insect. It infects your lymphatic system or your immune system. Second is septicemic, when plague enters your bloodstream. And third is pneumonic plague, when plague settles in the lungs and spreads human to human by breath. Plague is still around. In fact, plague is one of the most important re-emerging bacterial zoonotic diseases in the world. It is re-emerging in countries where the disease was thought to have been eradicated. This development has prompted the World Health Organization, WHO, to identify plague as an emerging disease. The bacterium causing plague is found on almost every continent. In recent years, plague epidemics have occurred in Asia, Africa, the island of Madagascar, and South America but most cases since the 1990s have occurred in Africa. In March of 2019, health workers in Uganda 
identified an outbreak of plague along the border with Congo. Fortunately, they acted quickly, and it did not spread to epidemic proportions. Cases of plague were also reported around the same time in China, but it does not only appear now in Africa and Asia. Only recently, a hiker walking around Lake Tahoe in California tested positive for bubonic plague. It's the first reported case in California in over five years. For now, it is still relatively easy to treat with antibiotics, and if caught early, it is not fatal. Plague lies dormant for long periods of time, but then emerges and spreads rapidly as epidemics, which before the invention of antibiotics could be extremely deadly. But strains of antibiotic-resistant plague do exist. They were identified in the mid and late 1990s in Madagascar. Historically, plague has caused three major pandemics. The first is known as the Plague of Justinian, named after the Emperor Justinian, who was the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Emperor from the year 527 to 565 of the Common Era. The Justinian Plague erupted in the 6th century in Asia or possibly Egypt and then spread throughout the empire over land and sea trade routes. It may have killed half of Europe's population before burning itself out. Scientists have only recently confirmed that the Justinian Plague was caused by a bacterial strain different from the one that caused the Black Death. It emerged, it spread, and then it died out. The second was the Black Death, which I'll come back to in a moment. The third is known as the so-called Oriental Plague, which broke out in 1894 in Asia and lasted until around 1930. This time the disease spread to every continent except Antarctica. Taken together, the three major plague epidemics killed millions of people worldwide from the 6th to the 19th centuries. It's the Black Death that mainly concerns us today. The Black Death most likely began in Asia in the 13th century and spread west through the Middle East, across North Africa, and through much of Europe. It killed between 40 to 60% of the populations of the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. 14th century Europeans called it the Great Mortality. The term Black Death came into widespread use later. Some Muslims referred to the year of annihilation. In Egypt, which was the most densely settled Islamic territory, where there had been a population of around 6 million in 1400, the Black Death cut it in half. Historians usually date the end of the Black Death in the mid-14th century, but plague outbreaks continued in Europe and the Islamic world well into the 18th century, so it is basically impossible to fix a clear end date to the Black Death. Historians know a lot about how plague affected populations and the changes that came about in its aftermath, especially in Europe. But we know less about how the pandemic broke out and how it spread as fast as it did in the age before modern modes of transportation had been invented. That said, we have learned a lot from advances in microbiology. 
Genetic research has confirmed the very close identity of the strain of Yersinia pestis found in human remains from the 14th century and those found around the world today. That makes Yersinia pestis what one scientist called a tracer element and a living chain of evidence that connects different times and places. Or, the way one French historian put it, a microbe united half the world. Plague victims were often buried together in large numbers. These mass burial sites are sometimes called plague pits. There are many of these in the city of London, for example. The 14th century plague killed over half of London's population. A few years ago, an organization called Historic UK produced an interactive map of the city's plague pits. The largest known pit, the one at Charterhouse Square, contains the remains of around 50,000 people. Recently, scientists have been able to extract DNA from the teeth of skulls in different burial sites to learn more about the bacterium, where and when plague entered Europe, and how it spread. One group of researchers has concluded that plague had one entry point, a town in Russia, Lyshevo, and not the Black Sea port of Lhasa, as has been commonly accepted. But there's still a lot more to learn. It's unclear at this point how plague reached Lyshevo in the first place. There's also been some important research recently suggesting that the Black Death Plague reached into sub-Saharan Africa. Until recently, scientists and scholars assumed that the plague never made it south of the Sahara Desert in the 14th century. They have assumed it only arrived in the 19th century from China or India. There are very few written records from sub-Saharan Africa in this period, and those that exist don't mention the disease. No one has found mass graves or plague pits of the kind found in Europe. And Europeans in the 15th and 16th centuries who went to Africa did not record the existence of plague. But we do know that there were trade routes that linked sub-Saharan Africa to other parts of the world. So could the disease have spread along them as it did elsewhere? Recently, scholars excavating sites in Ghana, Nigeria, and Burkina Faso discovered that in all three places, the population quickly disappeared in the 14th century. And there's no evidence that this was the result of famine, war, or conquest. So where did everyone go? Plague seems the most likely explanation. More evidence has been found in Ethiopia. In Ethiopian written sources from the 13th through the 15th centuries, historians have found previously unknown references to epidemics that killed large numbers of people. Now, it's not clear what the disease was, but a French scientist discovered that by the 15th century, Ethiopians had adopted two European saints associated with plague, Saint Roche and Saint Sebastian. More evidence is genetic. A 2016 study revealed that a distinct group of Yersinia pestis now found only in East and Central Africa is a cousin of one of the strains that devastated Europe in the 14th century. One scientist argues that this Black Death relative likely arrived in East Africa in the 15th or 16th centuries, but after another, now extinct, strain of Yersinia pestis had already burned through West Africa and, and perhaps beyond. 
What we still lack are samples of ancient Yersinia pestis DNA from human remains in sub-Saharan Africa. Part of the problem here is that the region's heat and humidity quickly degrade DNA. But it's possible that researchers will find preserved DNA in human teeth, where Yersinia pestis DNA is most likely to be preserved. The Black Death did more than kill a lot of people. It became a transformative moment in world history. The Black Death mostly killed people who produced food, and food production was severely disrupted or in some places collapsed. That collapse produced famine, which killed even more people. Food shortages and famine led to rising prices and hoarding, and also to political unrest. Unrest was worsened when leaders turned to repression to control it. Entire political regimes collapsed, most notably the enormous Central Asian Empire of the Mongols. So all this meant that systems of food production, trade networks, and political systems had to be rebuilt. Perhaps the biggest challenge facing post-Black Death rulers was legitimacy in the eyes of those they ruled. The most common response around the world was a turn to dynastic form of rule. Now, the dynasty was not new, but dynasties in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia became more powerful than they had ever been. And they based their claim to rule with reference to the divine. So Ming dynasty emperors in China claimed the mandate of heaven. European monarchs claimed divine right. Rulers of the Ottoman Empire claimed to carry the banner of Sunni Islam, while rulers of the Safavid Empire in what is now Iran made the same claim for Shiite Muslims. And they all developed new, more sophisticated ways of holding power, mainly by increasing control over their subjects. As you might imagine, the current pandemic has made many people look at past instances, like the Black Death or the influenza pandemic that followed World War I. How did they originate and spread? How did people respond to them? What changes did they bring about? This is more than an academic exercise. The stakes are extremely high. One writer estimated recently that if a plague epidemic on the same scale of the 14th century Black Death occurred in today's world, it would kill around 2 billion people. What most concerns epidemiologists and those concerned with national and international security are three things now. One is the emergence of bacteria resistant to antibiotics in a highly interconnected world in which millions of people move around the world as immigrants, migrants, tourists, laborers, white-collar workers, and refugees. Second, in many places, public health infrastructures are weak or they barely exist. But, as we learned recently, even where such infrastructures seem relatively strong, infectious diseases can spread and kill hundreds of thousands of people very quickly. And finally, could plague or another highly infectious disease be weaponized? And there's more. Studying the plague now shows us how the hard sciences and the humanities are codependent. Microbiologists, entomologists, zoologists, bioarchaeologists, epidemiologists, social scientists, and historians 
cannot effectively study the plague or other pandemics in isolation from one another. I like the way the American biologist Michelle Ziegler put it in the year 2014, and here I'm quoting Michelle Ziegler. Learning what we can from past epidemics is the best way to predict and prevent the next major epidemic. The careful analysis and contextualization of historical sources are therefore vitally important to our understanding of how plague functions as an epidemic pathogen. Combining historical data with a modern scientific knowledge also has the advantage of providing checks and balances to both humanistic and scientific study. It prevents researchers in all disciplines from stopping at the easy answers and being stymied by a mysterious etiology, meaning the causes of a disease. But there's even more. The history of the world during and after the biological old regime or during the plague pandemics or during the COVID-19 pandemic show us that there is no divide between human history and the history of the natural world. It's common to hear descriptions of disasters like floods, wildfires, and pandemics as coming out of nowhere. Yet many so-called natural disasters are human-generated and human-perpetrated. COVID-19 is a perfect example. Human encroachment on and destruction of habitats created the conditions for a new zoonotic disease to emerge. Finally, the history of pandemics show us that not only are we as humans connected to the natural world, we are all connected to each other. As Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, the world's most important journal of global medicine, put it recently, your health depends on my health. We cannot escape each other. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be well and take care of each other.